You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 101 for January 4th, 2017. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about the 50-year rule in U.S. archaeology. What is it? Where did it come from? How do we use it? And what would we replace it with? So go read some of Tom King's books and then tear them all right back down again and replace them with something new because the Serum Archaeology Podcast starts right now. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. It's the first show of 2017, um, first show of the new year, and the first show in the next set of... 100 shows for the CRM Archaeology Podcast Network, because as I said in the intro, this is episode number 101, so that's pretty exciting, keeping this thing going. Um, so, as I said, welcome to the show. Joining me today are Doug in Scotland. Hello. Stephen in Calgary. Hey. And Chris in Pennsylvania, although probably Kentucky, as you're listening to this. Yes. <laughs> or, no, Arkansas. By the time this airs, I'll be uh, over in ah. Arkansas working with Sonia. Right. I can't keep track of it. Too much stuff. I can't either. Yeah. <laughs> nice. That's my life. Exactly. All right. Well, today um, today we're going to talk about what's commonly just referred to as the 50-year rule in, uh, in United States archaeology. Um, it's, uh, I'm going to have Stephen give a little primer on what this is all about, but just a, a little bit of background. We've been talking about this. Uh, it's, it's kind of come up in conversation as we've had the last few shows. Um, talking, if not explicitly, they always kind of bring in the new Trump administration coming in and uh, and what that means for environmental policy and environmental law and how things might change. Um, Tom King's got a, a thing up on his blog where he's offering $1,000 to somebody who offers a, a different solution to our um, a heritage laws that actually works. I guess he's the judge and, and jury on that one. But uh, And he wants, he wants everything torn down. He wants NHPA, NEPA. Um, he wants the... Uh, the uh, National Register of Historic Places taken down. Um, he's all, uh, he's all, you know. Let's just get rid of all this. Start fresh and figure out something that works. Um, so, part of all that is the 50-year rule. <laughs> part of, part of what we do is what we call the 50-year rule, and that plays into this whole entire system. So, Stephen, um, you've got probably the most uh, archaeological uh, experience on this podcast, and you've dealt a lot with this. And could you give us, give us um, and our listeners just a little bit of a primer on what the fifty year rule means and kind of where it comes from? You know, why do we why do we even have this? Uh, sure, I, I, I'll do my best. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it, the fifty year rule comes from basically the criteria for eligibility in the National Register of Historic Places, which is the benchmark for historic significance uh, for uh, review under the National Historic Preservation Act. So basically the, the way it works is it's basically as it sounds. So um, in order for uh, an archaeological or historic pro- historical property to be historic, um, which is significant, um, it has to be 50 years old or older, um, and, and there are a few exceptions to that. Um, but normally, uh, for it to be under consideration, as far as what we archaeologists do, it, it, the rule is uh, typically 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I should point out that not all laws or, or even jurisdictions do it that way. Uh, 
the Archaeological Resources Protection Act, ARPA, um, actually is a 100-year rule um, that if it's mm -hmm. uh, an 80-year-old farmstead, say, um, that's not protected under ARPA, but would be still be considered under NHPA. So there's this weird gray window of 50 years between the 50 and 100-year mark uh, where some some things would have to be considered for for some uh, for um, one law, but not necessarily the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it kind of depends on on what uh, agency's land you're working on. Typically, too, I know I know working on Forest Service land here in Nevada, you get an ARPA permit to work on Forest Service land, and uh, and generally the hundred year rule applies unless they say otherwise, because uh, they've got some interesting arrangements and things like that with other agencies but um generally it's uh it's 100 years like you mentioned on those lands and i know uh that's not exclusive i heard somebody say this a while back and i remember thinking that's not exactly right but i heard somebody say that's ex exclusive to getting an arpa permit means that you get a you know you're you're under the 100 year old year rule plan but that's not actually true uh at least not in my current case <laughs> i'm on a project right now where we are recording stuff that's over 50 years old um, but we also had to get an ARPA permit from the state for, uh, not from the Forest Service, but from the state archaeologist, from the uh, uh, state BLM archaeologist, I should say, for this work. Um, and I'm not exactly sure why that is. Uh, I didn't ask. They just told me in the thing, in the proposal, in the requirements, these are, this is what you have to do. Get an ARPA permit from the state archaeologist, state BLM archaeologist. And then also still get a fieldwork authorization and things like that from the district archaeologist for that district of the BLM. So um, and, it's and not it's all cut and dry. And, and that's still, it's still, well, it's, it's BLM land. It's not Forest Service, but it's, uh, but I had to get the ARPA permit and the fieldwork authorization from the BLM. And they want me to record everything over 50 years old. So I'm not sure what's going on there. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, so yeah, we'll just talk about some ways that we use this. Um, you know, the, the current, current use is, I mean, it's 50 years. So right now we're looking at 1966 and next year we're going to be looking at 1967. And, uh, you know, if you're out there, uh, typically, uh, I, I can give a use case for a site, say in Nevada, you know, we've, we've seen trash dumps that span, you know, several decades because somebody just cleans out a garage or something like that. They dump all this stuff in the desert and now we... Are sifting through it and trying to figure out what we have and if one component of that is you know dates back to in period then and that's enough to make a site then you just record all of it you know you'll mention that you've got other in period trash or you know other modern trash we would call it um and maybe not necessarily record that stuff unless it was uh special or unique in some way um which is another thing we'll talk about with the 50-year rule but uh if it's especially unique, yeah, then you record it. But if it's over 50 years old, then it goes on the inventory forms, and, and we record it anyway. So anything uh, pre-1967, as of the recording of this episode, uh, or the airing of this episode, um, you'll, you'll record. So, you know, there's definitely, there's definitely some issues with that. But as I mentioned uh, just a second ago, there are some exceptions to all this. Um, you know, like, for example, when we, when we evaluate these sites, we're evaluating from them for inclusion on the National Register of Historic Places, which is managed by the Secretary of, Inter of the Interior. Um, not the Secretary of the Interior. It's managed under the Interior um, by the Park Service. And that's one of the big problems that Tom King has with it, is that, you know, who are they to judge what we determine is a nationally registered uh, significant site? So uh, that's a huge problem, according to Tom King. Some people think that's a great solution. 
but of course he doesn't, and I think he's got some some relatively valid reasons for that, actually. Um, but uh, anyway, when we evaluate sites, we use these four criteria that the National Register sets out, and um, none of that's really based on on time frame uh, those those criteria. So if you you could have a site that was you know, something that was nationally significant that happened last week and still recommend it for eligibility and inclusion on the National Register of Historic Places because it just became nationally significant. Um, I'm having a feeling that some of the stuff, I'm, I'm kind of surprised somebody hasn't already started the nomination process for like the, the location for, the, um, for the, uh, the Standing Rock Sioux camp over at the Dakota Access Pipeline. That seems to be relatively significant thing happening in our in our world right now and I'm, I'm kind of surprised somebody's not taking that from a cultural and historical background and saying we need to remember what happened here you know where all this happened and, and what's going on yeah um i think part of part of the reason part of the reason i think we have the 50-year rule um and and i i might just be making this up um but in, in my mind part of the reason why we have the 50-year rule is because um it gives us kind of a, a like a moratorium to let things kind of settle in and age um, because we're talking about historic significance mm -hmm. and not necessarily what's immediately important to us right because if, if we're dealing with what's immediately important to us you start getting a lot of nimbyism and and uh, <laughs> the, the immediacy of you know what it what personally happened to me or my parents mm-hmm Versus, you know, what happened to ancestors um, that are considerably more removed, mm -hmm. and and we're talking about, you know, um, historical significance on on a national level. Um, that that doesn't necessarily um, work towards, you know, like me and my personal family. And mm -hmm. uh, now I can't remember the reference, but I remember reading a couple of years ago. Uh, might have been in like the SAA archaeological record, might have been in like historical archaeology. Someone was talking about the process they went through um, when these laws were passed. And from my understanding, the 50 year rule was actually put in there arbitrarily, but because members of Congress came back and said, well, you have to put some sort of limit on this. And the sponsor of the bill basically just said 50 years. And that's that's how we ended up having the 50-year rule. Mm -hmm. um, I could be completely making this up, but I am pretty sure it got put in because when they originally put the bill through, there was no limit. Um, and for government work, someone pointed out, well, for practicality, you're going to need to put some sort of limit of mm -hmm. where the cutoff point is. And it ended up being 50 years. Um, right. So that, that was my understanding of how that happened. Um, it could have easily been 75 or 25, um, but it ended up being an arbitrary 50. That, that's really interesting because uh, in Alberta, the um, uh, I, sh I, I should know what this is called, the <laughs> Historic Resources Act, Historical Resources Act, there we go, um, does not specify a time window. And as a result, it, it's one of those like, well, it, we kind of use 50 years as a benchmark, but really it's not there. So there, there's a lot of unsurety about, you know, what should get considered and what shouldn't get considered because mm -hmm. it's not, it's not nicely hashed out like the 50 year mark. 
Um, but that's really interesting that it just kind of got tossed in. And, and it's, it, it's also interesting because it's different than, you know, ARPA's 100-year rule. Right. Um, and, and, yeah. You know, I've got a slightly different uh, take on that. And maybe this was not a, a conscious thought when, because I'm willing to bet that, that it happened exactly like, you know, what you and, and Doug are saying. You know, somebody said, we need a time frame. And then somebody came, else came back and said, okay, how about this? I'm willing to bet with the pace of things that were going on in, in what, the 60s, that, uh, you know, that wasn't a conversation that happened over the course of two minutes. It was probably a conversation that happened over the course of a few months. And, uh, uh, you know, when comments are going back and forth and things like that. So some thought was probably actually put into it um, at the very least. And, you know, my my kind of thinking on this, just because technology is always on my mind, um, obviously because of the things I'm into, my thinking on this is that in that time frame, you had people thinking, okay, well, how far back could we go where it's still a, a, an easy to remember kind of round number where we don't have like a super solid record? You're, you're into the period of time where, you know, there's TV, there's, um, you know, obviously radio and, and a number of things coming around. Computers are getting invented, things like that, where we're starting to uh, amass a large amounts of data. Um, and and historical uh, historical items of significance and record, and we have a, a good idea of what's going on in the current time period because it's kind of being recorded in a multiple uh, multiple ways. Whereas if you go back fifty years from there, you're in you know the tens and twenties, you're in the teens, <laughs> and and maybe it wasn't so good back then. And they're like, well, this is a good time to say from what we're looking at right now from here back let's record because we just don't really understand it that well you know we, we there's more information that we can glean from it because you know that information is now buried in the dirt rather than sitting in an archive somewhere i don't know maybe that's not true but maybe that's maybe that's where some of the thinking was going but the the weird absurdity well, of all that is that they didn't set a date on it they set a range on it and now we still have that range and now the 50 year rule actually goes back to when nhpa started which is kind of weird yeah um i I think a lot of people ha carry that attitude towards it, particularly the people who don't like the 50-year window. Mm -hmm. um, that you know, th these are people who are primarily concerned with uh, applications of archaeology towards uh, like a cultural history sort of thing, mm -hmm. where we're identifying. Um, you know, ba basically we're we're outlining. We're still um, figuring out chronology, right? You mm -hmm. know, and, and the the uh, cult material culture that that corresponds to this chronology right um but but i think that uh um you know the the argument against that cannot can also be made and, and actually in some ways you could almost make a, an argument for a tighter window mm -hmm. um you know thinking about as as we've progressed through the 20th century and into the 21st century uh for example uh trends in prod product cycles um mm -hmm. materials have massively sped up and and uh you know to to use the the atari project as an example, you know, like it's not even close to 50 years um, in how many different like video games say, you know, have, have come and gone. Right. And, and what's considered antiquated in, in the in the video game world. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, I think antiquated is the 80s at this point, maybe the, the 70s for some real some real hardcore people. But definitely the 80s and the 80s are making a resurgence, too, with, you know, the new. uh um, I mean, everybody, there's, there's a lot of people with devices these days that are, uh, you know, a child or product of the 80s in some way or another was very uh, greatly influenced by them. 
And you can see that just in the release, the re- recent release of the new Mario game for iOS for for Apple. <laughs> it just came out a couple days ago, uh, and I'm, we're recording this on the 17th uh, or the 18th of December. So this just came out, I think, three days ago, and it's also one of the it's already one of the number one sellers on the Apple App Store, and the entire App Store has been changed to red um, and Mario themed to to support it. I mean, that's the that's huge, uh, and that's because of the '80s. That's because of Nintendo in the '80s. So people see it that way. But I totally agree. Anyway, uh, I think I think we're going to go ahead, and this is a good stopping point to take our first break, and we will come back and talk a little bit about kind of what's working and, and what's not working, and uh, and see what we can do with that. All right, back in a minute. I'm here with Michael Ashley from Codify.com, and we're going to talk about the new photo boards that they're developing and why we need them. Michael, what's important about a photo board, and why does someone have to really think about what they use in the field or in the lab? You know, Chris, it's interesting when we look at field photos, the way we've been taking them hasn't changed much in the past hundred years. Some people may use the back of a clipboard or paper sheet to provide a clean background, or go to the trouble of using those photo boards with all the letters, but we really need our photos to do a lot. We need a new kind of photo board that can help us achieve consistent color, provide scale, and help us measure things, especially if we're not collecting artifacts and we have just one chance to get it right. Developing a photo board that can do all these things, especially designed for digital photography, well, this is a challenge. It needs to be indestructible, weatherproof, fade-proof, lightweight, portable, and affordable. So what is Codify developing? And as it says on the website, what makes it magic? All right, in our lab and field testing, we started with a 10 by 12 inch board Big enough for most artifacts we encounter in the field, but not so big it would be a pain to carry. The board is magic because it has special markers on it that will produce a measurable model in 3D just from taking a few photos, and the object will be magically color balanced by using the board as a background. There's space on the bottom so we can superimpose a digital caption and company logo, plus a space for either physical barcodes or virtual ones to dramatically improve field and lab accessioning of artifacts and samples. So we've already received a lot of suggestions for other boards, so we're releasing a 4x6 inch pocket board in both Imperial and Metric. And we're psyched about our directional arrow, which has both metric and standard scales on it, and will white balance your photos. It's really cool. So when can people expect to get one of these photo boards, and where can they get them? All right, well, we're excited to say that we have a limited run in production right now, shipping just in time for holiday gifts. We want to get these in your hands and look forward to your feedback. Chris, what kind of deal can APN listeners get? All right, well, just head over to www.codify.com forward slash APN for a discount code that's valid only on that day and for other ongoing discount codes just for you. That's codifi.com forward slash APN. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. All right, we're back. And, uh, you know, at the first segment, we were talking about a little of the background and history of the 50-year of the rule, and now we're moving into some other stuff. But, um Chris, why don't you kick us off with a few comments? You know, me personally, I, I've got a, a take on this. It comes from working primarily on uh, deep prehistoric sites, um, you know, like Paleolithic and and uh, archaic sites and all that. Um, but so, you know, I'm conflicted on the 50-year rule often. And in terms of on the one side, it complicates the workflow. Um, which is time and money. And then um, it's also a sustainability issue too. Uh, mm-hmm. we've, we're talking about space uh, and then we're talking about, you know, the resources that go into storing these things, the, you know, 
appropriate land use and so on and so forth. That's its own issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you've also got, you know, in defense of the 50-year rule, and I think in defense of Stephen's comment before the break of even getting tighter than 50 years, is uh, where it democratizes the past to mm-hmm. be able to study the material remains. And I've mentioned in a few other podcasts, I think in the most recent Archaeotech, uh, I talk about Bill Rathje's garbology, and that is a great defense of contemporary material uh, studies. And it, it's because people don't re- self-report very accurately on their consumption and on kind of their understanding of political ecology. And so being able to study the material past, even if it's not the not so distant past, kind of democratizes the past. And so here we are with the 50 year rule, we're approaching the material remains of the civil rights era. And uh, so it's going to be really interesting to look through that. And so we already have, you know, a fairly decent material understanding of the development of the middle class, the development of the black middle class. uh, And now we're going to start getting an even more in-depth understanding of the material remains of Mm -hmm. civil rights and segregation and de facto racism and so on and so forth. And I think it's going to extend into the intensification of capitalism and all that. So that's a good defense of the 50-year rule is now we're looking at this post-war expansionist materialism. And I think, historically speaking, this is where it starts to get pretty interesting in, Amer- you know, in American history. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was, that was just what I wanted to weigh in on in defense of the 50-year rule. I know that there's plenty of criticisms of it, but, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of opportunity with 50 year and even tighter. That's interesting because we, we just recorded uh, a podcast with a Swedish archeologist for the archeology span show. Uh, it's episode five, I believe. And um, we were talking about contract archeology span over there. And most of their archeology span as, uh, as with here is done via contract archeology. Span. And um, he was saying that uh, uh, they actually have, you know, a couple different regulations that everybody abides by, but one of them is a, uh, uh, is a 150 year rule. I think it's actually set at like 1850 or something like that. And, um, and it's for, you know, it's for very specific things, but it brought up the conversation of our 50 year rule and, and things like that. And, um, April, the co-host of that show, she actually made a good comment when I was mentioning some of this stuff that we were going to record for this show, she had a good comment. And, and Chris, you just exactly said the same thing. It's about democratizing the past. If we said, if we said there is no time frame, there is no rule, right? And we left it up to archaeologists to determine what's significant. That introduces a bias. That introduces um, prejudice that you might not even know you have. And that introduces all sorts of factors that would say, uh, you know, well, I'm not going to record this because of this. You know, I'm just going to make that determination. Right now, we re-record it. uh, And we've all been on crews where somebody leading the crew or somebody on the crew is like, trying to make a case for not recording it because it's three o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday or because it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, that's happened and we know it and we yeah. have to acknowledge that, but we're beholden to record it because ethics, right? We say, listen, this is, we have to record this because it fits the criteria of a site. It, it's within the time frame. We're going to record it. If we start removing those restrictions that that unethical behavior is going to start kicking in because humans are humans, right? If we say, 
it's up to you to decide what's significant, then that's the thing. And more to April's point, uh, and then Chris, you can comment on this. More to April's point is she said also that we don't know what's significant when it's happening. So if something happened yesterday, yeah. we don't know if it's significant. So record it and do something about it. Have it in the in the system, and then in 75 years, we'll be glad we had it. Yeah, and to that point, I think it's really important uh, to be vigilant to uphold historical preservation standards and to, like you had said, uphold the ethics of recording the past is because mm-hmm. if we're not, then we're going to be looking at gentrifying <laughs> the past right. or, you know, resegregating the past. And so it's it's just, uh, I don't know, it's very important. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think this, um, this is where some of the complaints come from because you always get people who are complaining about like, well, I don't want to record, you know, cassette tapes because, you know, <laughs> I, I grew up with cassette tapes and, and 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 I, I think that part of the part of the argument for you know an actual year, a set year of of like you know we're only concerned with things before that, is the perception that the stuff that we live through, uh, um, is is not worth our time, uh, um, and and we need to uh, and take more of a, like uh, I want to say anthropological perspective of um, archaeology within the cultural resources world where, mm-hmm. you know, we are talking about, you know, people and, and people didn't stop at 1960. Right. Yeah. That's uh, I've always said when I have to record Gatorade bottles that I'll, that's my point to retire. I didn't say I wouldn't do it, but that I would retire when that happens. <laughs> so and we're getting pretty close. <laughs> we're getting pretty close to that. Uh, Doug, it's I think you have, Oh man, this is the one with Michael Jordan on it. Or something, <laughs> that's right? a good point. Good, well, we do that with Coke bottles now, so why not? And we're, we're going to be getting to the point relatively soon when, when Coke started changing their, um, their bottles pretty significantly in their cans, actually, to, to, you know, um, to highlight certain events in history and things like that. Not hurt, it wasn't history then, but you know, certain events like Super Bowl, stuff like that. So that actually will be quite dateable, uh, which will be nice. Uh, yeah, Doug? Well, I actually just wrote off a, uh, um, a uh, 20th century uh, component um, on the basis of a uh, stay tab can. So it was, you know, like, yes, stay tab can, 1976. <laughs> nice, uh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and, and as things, it'll be interesting too, um, as, you know, as we get closer and closer to, um, you know, like the, the end of the 60s, the beginning of the 70s, things like that, uh, companies were starting to, you know, come up and, and go away quicker than they had in the past, I think. Uh, at least companies that were more, um, not like small businesses, but large companies were bought and sold and everything like that. So things come and go out of fashion, and, and we'll be able to mark that change uh, in the record. Yeah, you, you start to get a lot of amalgamation yeah. when, when you're tra- business ownership. It just goes crazy around 1950. Yeah, exactly. Well, just like a distinction, but I think it's a pretty important one, is it's not making something significant. It's making something eligible to go through the process to determine if it's significant right um because we're talking about in the sense we keep saying you know about 50 years you know it's significant stuff it's just saying that it needs to go through the process at 50 years um so it doesn't necessarily mean that what we're doing will end up saying that this is significant well that's that's true um it could just be yeah um i disagree with that i i would disagree um that it, it is significant in the legal expression within the act as defined, right? That it, it, 
it has to be, you know, it's not even a historic property if if it doesn't meet those criteria. And, and you know, despite the fact that all of us are like, well, it, it could still be a historic property, but not underneath the act uh, or under the act. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I might, you know, and I, I get what Doug's getting at, that significance is not tied to, or, or like actual historic significance is not tied to a register, but for, for the purposes of the act and compliance, what we do, uh, I think you make the case that it is. Well, and, and there goes, there's a lot to be said for the, uh, the opinion of the first, the first, um, uh, the first recording of it, you know, if uh, and Doug is right, we don't actually determine significance at the, at the survey level. We determine eligibility for listing on the national register of historic places. We say, is this potentially eligible? That's basically as far as we go with it at the first, the first step of the game. And then, you know, uh, SHPO or BLM here in Nevada will either disagree or agree with that. And then if, if a developer needs to destroy that site or develop through it or around it or something or mitigate it in some way, then it will go to the next phase. If they don't, then it'll probably just sit there forever unless somebody has a personal mission to, to you know, seek National Register um, listing for that site. But otherwise, it's going to stay there and be potentially uh, eligible for the, for the rest of its existence until somebody else comes along and either does further investigation or, um, or like I said, tries to get it listed. But I think the first opinion of the archaeologist, you know, the, the professional archaeologist that said, I think this is potentially eligible for listing, I think that probably carries a lot of weight. So in, in a way, we are determining significance. Because if we say it's not potentially eligible, that's a determination in and of itself of insignificance, right? Because... We're saying, go ahead, I recorded all the information that we're going to get from this site. Feel free to run your bulldozers right, bulldozers right over the top of it. If that's not a determination from the field, then I don't know what is. Um, and that's that's a pretty uh, – that's something that shouldn't be taken lightly, I think, in the field. Um, I think that's a, a pretty big responsibility that we have. Well, while we're not saying it's listing on the National Register, we're definitely saying it's not. <laughs> that has that has a huge impact. I, I was getting at a slightly different point was that all the 50-year rule does is kick off the process right. at 50 years. And I think, yeah, what we're saying is if you can determine that it's 50 years or older, that means you need to go through the process. And mm-hmm. if it's under 50 years – then you need to find a you either ignore it or you find a different process to engage people with mm-hmm. i guess you could say I, I guess that's actually my biggest problem with the 50 year rule uh, is i think it's probably too late which is probably going against what most everyone else's complaint against mm-hmm. it most people say it's it's too early i think it's too late if you think about most the life of most buildings um, or houses, you know, most of them go under a major renovation or knockdown at, you know, 30 years, 40 mm-hmm. years, well before you hit the 50-year rule. And I think if you're looking to democratize the process as we're talking about it, you really need to have people considering that much sooner than 50 years in my personal opinion yeah what about totally you? well you're, you're totally right and and we've got a modern uh instance of this of the another facet of this problem as well because like i was saying when somebody's out doing survey they're making the determination of do we start that process or not right um well not really though like you said if it's over 50 years old the first step in that process is is it significant or is it not significant? If it's not, then we're making that determination. If it is, then somebody else is going to make that determination moving forward. 
But where I think the biggest problem with this whole process comes in, where I think Tom King is absolutely right, is, again, I hate to keep bringing it up, but the Dakota Access Pipeline, the archaeologists working on that project, they did their best. They did their, um, they walked across this pipeline. We've all done pipeline stuff, or, or, or at least heard about it. And you walked across this pipeline, they did their shovel tests, or they did their pedestrian survey. I'm not sure what they did out there. I think it's shovel testing up there in that those portions of North Dakota and South Dakota. Um, they did their shovel tests, and they said, well, we didn't find anything. We didn't see anything here. And they completely ignored the Missouri River. They completely ignored the tribal lands that they were near and, and walking through. And because it didn't fit into their box and their concept of, you know, criteria A, B, C, or D, and... Um, and, and what that means, so event, uh, person, construction method, or data, because it didn't kind of fit into those boxes, they completely ignored the massive cultural significance of the Missouri River to the um, to the uh, Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and, and any other tribes in the area as well. So, you know, I guess the question remains, though, should that river have been put on the National Register or a section of that river been put on the National Register or should the entire river be put on the National Register? And because we have the National Register of Historic Places as our only sort of metric on whether or not something is significant, it kind of makes it so, you know, that's kind of huge. We're not going to put all the rivers in the United States on the National Register of Historic Places. I mean, maybe we should, but we're just not. Nobody would ever get that passed through because literally every river here has had some historic cultural significance to somebody. You know, water sources are the, you know, the one of the key things we look for when we're looking for sites. It's on all of our site forms. How far is the nearest water? It's on there. It's it's right on the form. So <laughs> it's that means should they all be significant? Um, but since our only measure of criteria for that is the National Register of Historic Places, then uh, it's really difficult to to make that case. I don't know. Uh, I'm starting. I'm talking myself into into the Tom King argument every, every second we go through this. So this is just a slightly, sorry to take us back um, and a little ways away from what your comment was, Chris. Um, I was actually just doing a little bit, bit of research. I was wrong on my recollection of why the 50 year rule was there. Um, it was actually, so I've just found some articles. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, it was originally set up in about the 1930s um, by the National Park Service uh, when they were doing, you know, pre-list stuff, when they were doing some of the earlier pre-NEPA stuff mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, National Historic Preservation Act. They had actually come up with this cutoff of 1870 um, with the idea that it was old enough so there wouldn't be any controversy. And then that eventually turned into a rolling 50-year guidelines that got added to um, by the National Park Service after the act passed mm-hmm. as just guidelines. And the guidelines actually, from what I'm reading, and I didn't actually know this, I thought the 50-year was actually there, but it's a, it's a suggestion. It's mm-hmm. not you could nominate something under fifty years to the National Register. Yeah. If you wanted. Yeah. Um, and that, that's right. That's exactly right. I was always but trained it, in the field. But it's very hard to do. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, they're saying something like you're, you're talking about something like ground zero. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, that I'm is reading, yeah, it's like two percent or something like that or under fifty when they're nominated. Um but I well, I was actually trained in the field. I was always trained look for a date if you find any date that's under 50 years 
we don't have to record it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not these regulations put into practice, at least when I was, you know, out doing stuff, was definitely much more um, a hard border than what the actual actual regulations say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so that was that was a way of just saying I was wrong earlier when I was discussing <laughs> um, my recollection of what I thought was there. It was this regulations rolled in from earlier stuff, and no one knows why the 50-year rule was there. Um, there's no written record of who said 50 years. It was mm-hmm. just mainly chosen as they thought it was old enough that it wouldn't cause any controversy. Right. All right. Well, this has been a great discussion so far, and I think we're going to come back on the other side. We'll probably continue this part a little bit, but then I also want to talk about, uh, you know, what are some changes that we would make if we could? You know, how, what what should the rule be, um, and and how should we proceed moving forward if we have the opportunity to do that? So, and we'll be back in a second. All these things we make no apology are the study of archaeology, but we don't do dinosaurs. Did aliens build Stonehenge? Did the Easter Island statues walk? Did the Vikings colonize Midwest America? What does mainstream archaeology have to say about all of this? Listen to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast and learn about popular archaeological mysteries. Hoax or fact? Learn to tell the difference with Dr. Kenneth Fader and co-host Sarah of the Archie Fantasies blog. Check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Fantasies and get ready to think critically. Let's get back to the show. Funny beady blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology. Okay, we're back and we're going to try to figure out, uh, I, I would just want to kind of kind of riff on this a little bit and see what we think would actually work for, um, you know, for, for a replacement to the quote 50 year rule, you know, which is tied to tied to other things. Or should there be a rule at all, you know? Um, there's uh there's all kinds of ideas on this and and if we have any other issues with it that we haven't discussed then we can do that too and I think Steven's got one right now. Yeah, um one of the issues uh that maybe a lot of CRM archaeologists don't see um with with the moving 50-year window is that eventually um things that we looked at and passed over um turn into 50-year-old sites. Um and 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 depending on the nature of the project that we're working on, like, are, are you working for a land management agency or are you working with, for a private developer who's got a permit and, and is just trying to go through, um, you know, private land. So there's no like actual management of, of the resource going on beyond the immediate project that, you know, we, we go out there uh, and, and that state tab can site is a perfect example. It's like, I went out there, um, found a bunch of uh, 20th century material and, and the only thing with really with the date on it or datal was um, a, a beer can that had a stay tab and stay tabs are the modern pull tabs that you're, <laughs> yeah. you're familiar with on, on uh, beer pop cans or soda cans or whatever you want to call them. And, and that showed up in 1970. It was invented in, in, in the mid 70s and, and, and really came into, became common in, in the early 80s. But eventually in 2030, 1980 is going to be a 50 year old site mm-hmm. and and um something that concerns me particularly because we are not thinking about the future so much as um you know just just getting our project through is that 
we go out and we're like, oh, this was a blah 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 blah, and and, and it's it's clearly you know clearly too young to be uh, considered, and and we kind of stop it, and there's no recording of like things that will be archaeological sites, mm-hmm. and, and where this becomes an issue is further down the line. Um, if, if somebody's like, yeah, that area was already surveyed. Oh, there was a historic, you know, concentration of material there. Right. Um, is that now 50 years old? Because that survey was done in 1984. And, yeah. and, 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 and nobody knows because nothing was collected, nothing was recorded. So it just says historic trash pile. Right. You know, 250. Um, and maybe there's a date there if you're lucky. Um, but a lot of times, you know, and, and I know I'm guilt, as guilty as anybody about this, mm-hmm. um, is that, you know, we, we don't we don't say like, hey, th- this has a freshness date of 2030. So after 2030, you need to get back <laughs> out there and, and take another look at it and, yeah. and maybe reconsider it for uh, eligibility. Well, and that's one one thing California does is they uh, they actually have I think it's. I think it's 54 years if it's 50, uh, 52 or 52 to 54, because they're they're saying that um, and they're right. Uh, they're just they just acknowledge this, but they say that the site has to be um, if the site hits 50 years old before the final report is submitted and all these records are submitted, then it should have been recorded. Um, so if the site is, you know, 49 years old and you're recording it and you know the final report for this thing is not going to be approved for another year. Then you should record it because by the time the um, developers come around to actually getting out there, the site will be 50 years old, and they're trying to avoid that because um, you know the, the the process from initial survey to actual bulldozers on the ground could be several years uh, in a lot of cases just because of regulations, especially in California. So they've taken to calling it. I think it is 54 years. I can't remember. Um, but if yeah, you have to you have to record based on that. Um, yeah, I have a comment on the National Register evaluation criteria. So generally, we talk about criteria A through D, mm-hmm. and I'll just list these off real quick for anybody who's not familiar. Uh, a is um, associated with events that have made significant contribution to broad patterns of our history, or B that are associated with the lives of persons significant in our past, or C, uh, material that embodies distinctive characteristics of a type, period, or method of construction that represent the work of a master, or that possess high artistic values, or D, uh, they yield or are likely to yield information important to prehistory or history. And so um, I'm sure... You know, Stephen and Chris and, and Doug, you guys probably have comments on this, but I think that there's an issue with how this is structured. And I've I've seen historical preservation blogs talk about the institutionalized racism and kind of structural violence of historical preservation and also of the way we define the work of masters and the work of high art mm-hmm. um, and how folk art and kind of uh, low quality craftsmanship is dismissed as not significant. And so I'm sure that there are ways to get into, and criteria D or criterion D is kind of the, the catch all that, you know, usually ends up saving any, uh, you know, short sightedness of criteria B or C. (laughs) Um, But it's all about how we define what what is significant. And I think that that's 
that's kind of one of those things where you've got to have a serious conversation with Shippo and you've got to have a serious conversation with your management and and all that to be able to make sure that you're uh, that you're doing the resources a service that mm-hmm. you know you're like we had talked about earlier in this episode that we're having ethical considerations to democratizing the past in choosing to collect the or record material choosing to collect or record uh or not collect but choosing to record features or sites and then choosing to nominate them as potentially eligible mm-hmm. um so on and so forth so what do you guys think about that like the the limitations or it's just kind of the the built-in you know kind of structural blindness of these criteria but i have a quick comment too um First off, so you can remember the criteria, the way I always do it is, you know, the ABCD is action, body, construction, data. Um, so that's kind of, you know, event and, and all that stuff. So that's kind of how I remember what they are because I always forget. <laughs> so I had to come up with something. Um, but, you know, I, I think, uh, again, I said earlier that that we have problems where if we don't have rules to follow, the people will skip over sites for various reasons, right? They'll they'll make up they'll make stuff up whether they're doing it consciously or unconsciously. They'll justify them to themselves reasons why they're not recording stuff. Um, but Criterion D actually has a lot of um, a lot of significance. We record a lot of stuff under D here in the states because we often don't know when I'm looking at a trash scatter that has some some really interesting uh, ceramics or some really interesting patterns or some stuff, stuff like that that I want to say is significant because it's possibly associated with this mine over here, which was significant or something like that. You know, I want to say that that's significant. I have no idea who left it there. I have no idea. There's no, there's no grand construction thing going on with a tin can. Cause that usually refers to, um, you know, structures and things that were like, you know, architecture and things like that. It doesn't have to, but often does. Um, and then as far as the, uh, you know, events, I mean, the event was a trash dump as far as I know. So I can't really tell much about it. But Criterion D is what we record nearly everything under. And I would say almost exclusively all prehistoric sites, unless we know something about it, is probably Criterion D. You know, maybe like a, like a, a, you know, like a buffalo jump site or something like that or, or, you know, something where you can say a different kind of event happened here. You might be able to justify Criterion A. But, um, but definitely D because it's not just one criterion either. It can be significant for all of them or two of them or something like that. Cause when you make your eligibility statement, you say why you think this is eligible here and why it's not eligible here when you write that statement. But I think the, the, the basic thing here, and then I'll, I'll, I'll give it back to you guys is we need rules to follow. We need rules to follow because the fact of the matter is we're having a high level level discussion here amongst people with, uh, you know, master's degrees and, and seeking PhDs and, and, you know, we're not, we're not necessarily the people on the ground. The people on the ground are, you know, they've been in CRM for one to five years and they're field technicians, they're new crew chiefs, things like that. Obviously there are way more experienced crew chiefs out there, but these people are making the initial eligibility statement based on the rules that, that they have been given. Right. So, you know, having somebody with potentially little experience in actually doing all this, going out there and making a determination for all of our prehistory and whether or not something is significant. They're not obviously making the ultimate determination, but they're making the first determination, which is incredibly important. And, and we need to give them rules to follow, I think. And I think Stephen might disagree with me or Chris does. I don't know. Go ahead. Uh, I'm going to disagree with just that last statement. I, I think most of what you say is, is correct. Um, that we do in fact need, if, if not like 
really rigid rules, we definitely need a uh, um, kind of a baseline of, of yeah. You know, well, I don't mean base- rigid necessarily, but um, but but I, w- I would um, first disagree with uh, your your comment about uh, the crew chiefs basically people who aren't um you know don't have a lot of experience uh, making those initial uh declarations because typically um the way that uh the PIs operationalize um the internal uh com- like companies uh mm-hmm. process for the field is, is that things get recorded and um there there's usually a little extra rigidity in there like um you know we you know I want you to record what you found. And then when we call them out of, call it out of the notes for, you know, just as, as not passing the certain threshold, then, then that's happening back at the office. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, to, to a certain degree, they, they are making, uh, they are making, you know, at least an initial determination because they have to be able to recognize if something's there or not. Um, but for the most part, I, th- I think like the actual decision-making of whether it's important or whether it's, it's right offable usually is, at least some ways uh, operationalized within the company. I think that's um, true. I think that's true in, in practice, like in, in actual procedure, we like to think that, but I think in reality, there's a lot of companies out there and a lot of timeframes where uh, it's just the project manager just doesn't have the time. I mean, maybe they found more sites than they expected, maybe something like that, but I've seen it more than a handful of times where the project manager basically just, uh, you know, they'll, they'll just, they'll just use whatever was determined in the field as the thing. And I've seen companies where they say, write your eligibility statements in the field. So they're having crew chiefs write the eligibility statement. And then the project manager, they might be giving it a once over, but if they've got 300 sites to do in three days, they're probably not giving it that much of a look. Um, If something glaring sticks out at them, sure. um, Maybe that's the case, but we all know that CRM has no money and no time. And uh, I just, I just wouldn't put it on the project manager to make that final determination. Um, and I would, uh, you know, I would try to train our people in the field to actually just have better information so they can do their job uh, even, even better because they are the first and often last people to ever see this stuff. So um, while I agree with you, Stephen, that that's how it should go and that's how it probably does go with some of the maybe bigger companies or maybe even smaller companies that have fewer projects and they just, they can apply more time to this. But you know, you get your average size middle company and, uh, and you know, you've got your project manager and when they're nearing the end of the project, they're being given another project and another project and this stuff is just piling on. So, and none of us are dealt to, uh, you know, educated to deal with leadership issues and time management issues and things like that. So you're, you run from a field tech up into this project manager position and, uh, it's just, uh, it's chaos. So I don't want to, I don't want to place all the blame on their shoulders, but you know, Stephen, go ahead. Oh, I would. But anyway, um, <laughs> we should. You're right. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, going going back to uh, um, Sim's questions about our discussion about the criteria, um, I've kind of always felt that these kind of attack on to make archaeologists happy, uh, particularly uh, archaeologists who focus on pre-contact stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that we uh, <laughs> like, like you say, you know, it's like. Uh, you, know, you have important events. Th- those are historically documented things. You have mm-hmm. important important persons. Um, those are historically documented people. Um, um, you know, and then yeah, style kind of, you know, uh, short of a landscape thing. Um, for the most part, style again is buildings, like you say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and uh, I feel like 
that that's why we kind of fall on data. And, and, and part of that is because it's a strongly uh, pre-contact bias, right? Yeah. yeah. That, that, you know, like we're, we're doing data, but, but even his, you know, for historical archeologists, if you're doing like an industrialized view of say farmsteads, you're not necessarily looking at, uh, you know, you know, maybe you can talk, talk your way into events, but you're not really talking about individuals per se. You're t- talking right. about like agriculture as an industry or, or, or something like that. And, and um, so it, it's kind of weird because the way that, even though this is all under one act, um, the way it's, it's um, divided up um, functionally div- separates archaeologists away from uh, uh, basically like architectural concerns and, and, and other historical aspects. Um, that, you know, we are kind of sitting down there, down, down with criterion D, but those other things are, are, you know, well, you better get a historical architect or architectural historian. Sorry. Right. Um, and, and, and likewise carrying that further into NEPA where you're talking about like sacred landscapes, you mm-hmm. know, sacred stuff like that, where you were talking about rivers earlier for, um, that, you know, you're dealing with yet another sort of cultural resource, but again, we do archaeology work for criterion D mm-hmm. and think that we kind of, I don't want to say we're over specialized. Um, I, I think that we are highly compartmentalized in what parts of the process that we see and, and participate in. And a lot of times because of that, other parts of the process get ignored. Right. Um, so, so to go back to, you know, the Tom, Tom King's challenge, that what you would want is something a little bit more unified mm-hmm. in, in approach. Yeah, I I agree. Definitely something more unified. Um, I, I would like to elaborate real quick on something you were saying, you know, like, um, well, not, not necessarily even that, but just to, while we have time and while we still have the national register and while we still have these criteria, uh, these criteria to, to use, um, you know, I'd like to encourage people to kind of think outside the box on some of this stuff and make a stronger case for some of these sites. Because like Steven said, and like I said, um, you know, a lot of our prehistoric sites are, um, uh, a lot of our prehistoric sites are criterion D, you know, they're, they're almost exclusively D. But if you, if you really understand the area that you're working in and you make a good case for it, uh, like for example, if you're in an area that just doesn't have a lot of prehistoric sites, right? Maybe there's Maybe there's not a lot there, or maybe not a lot in a certain time period. Then you find this one site that has a bunch of datable objects that that really solidly place it in this time period, and it's like one in, you know, one in a thousand sites or something like that. You can almost say criteria A for event. You don't know. You don't have to know what that event was, but some sort of event ha- must have happened here, or something to bring these people here and nobody else. Right? What happened here to make this different? And then um, I can see a case for also C. For construction that's outside of architecture, if like say you find a, a really, you know, a, a really special, um, you know, ceremonial, uh, you know, flint-napped object or something like that of a of a crazy shape or something like that, you know, maybe that was the, uh, and you just don't see anything like that in the archaeological record in that entire area, you know, that could be the work of maybe a, a local master or something like that. But there's a lot of things that you can say about these things if you really think outside the box and you try to do your, your due diligence on that. So, But as always, we could keep talking about this forever and, uh, and keep commenting on it. And maybe we'll, we'll have some other episodes coming up in the next few months that talk about different aspects of these things as we're, as we're entering the changing 
landscape of the Trump presidency. So, all right. Well, thanks again, guys, for joining me. And uh, I hope we all have a, a solid 2017 and, and we all have jobs by the end of it. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Podcast. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for the episode. You can also email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag CRMARCpodcast or you can tag at ARCpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to the show wherever you saw it. If you share CRM archaeology related items on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else for that matter, be sure to use the hashtag CRMARC so the community can see and comment. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Also, please consider donating to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Your donations help fund our bandwidth and contribute to our editing costs. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Jesus. Bye. Wow. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.